Listener Production. Welcome to State Crime Command, the official podcast of the New South Wales Police Force. I'm your host, Adam Shand. Each year, New South Wales firefighters attend an average of 25,000 fires. Up to 3,000 of these are believed to be lit deliberately. However, only a handful of people are convicted of arson annually in New South Wales. These investigations and the prosecutions that follow are difficult. Offenders strike quickly and opportunistically. Strike Force Wiley was one such investigation. It was a joint effort in 2016 by local detectives and specialist property crime investigators. The aim was to bring a very determined serial arsonist to account. Between November 2013 and May 2016, there were 26 suspicious fires in just one local area, Carlingford in Sydney's northwest. The offender was operating with impunity, lighting fires mostly in broad daylight. Strikeforce Wiley began looking at the Carlingford fires on January 29, 2016. Ride detectives had been working the case for nearly three years. No arrests had been made and community concern was rising. The area was a residential area of Carlingford with quite dense residential housing. Brad Pittman was with Ride Detectives at the time. My name's Brad Pittman. I'm a detective senior constable. I've been in the New South Wales Police Force for just over 10 years, currently attached to the financial crime squad. One of the key moments in the investigation was a blaze in the garage of a block of flats on Tuesday, July 22nd, 2014. This fire yielded at least one person of interest. So firstly, there was a fire in the unit block garage area. And at that point, there was no suspects for arson offences or anything like that. It was just that it had occurred. The people who turn up to watch a fire often provide clues as to who started it. This lady was seen around that fire scene and was interested in the police actions and fire brigade actions at that scene. My name's Detective Sergeant Hassan El Kanza. I've been attached to the New South Wales Police for the last 22 years and um, been working in the field of arson for 15 of those 22 years. Detective Sergeant El Kanza was the team leader of Strike Force Wiley. All the fires were reviewed in the early days of the operation, working from the evidence ride detectives had gathered, including the suspicious behaviour of the woman at the garage fire. Her name was Yasmin Moon, and she lived with her husband, Elvis, and two children in the same apartment block where the fire had taken place. Detective Sergeant El Kanza. A lot of people do come out and look at fires and watch the emergency services. Just the behaviour and the interest of this particular lady alerted police to, well, something might be up, or this person just seems a little too interested in what we're doing here. So that's how that name initially popped up to us. There was nothing more to directly link anyone to this incident or the fires that had sporadically occurred in the area from 2013. Then in mid-2015, the arson attacks suddenly ramped up. Sometime later, a series of fires, smaller fires on brush fences and grassland were taking place in the Carlingford area. 
Um, and that's where the riot detectives started to look at those fires individually. These fires were mostly lit in a tight corridor a few kilometres wide. You know, the first 10 or so fires occurred across about a two-month period. And then as time went on, you might have one fire a week, then three fires a week, and then a period of time where there'd be no fires during you know, a couple of weeks, and then the fires would continue again. So, you know, we're talking over several months, if not, you know, six, seven, eight months of fire lighting over the whole course of the investigation. Brad Pittman. The pattern in the fires that were being lit were brushwood stick fence, time of day, weekday rather than weekend. There was also a consistent pattern in how the fires were lit. The fires were lit halfway up the fence. You know, we're talking chest or hip height, especially when some of those fires went out and didn't consume the entire fence. Early indications that no accelerant was being used, we didn't identify any liquid accelerant or even sort of uh, solid accelerant that was used to light the fires. It appeared that someone was just putting a flame directly onto the stick fence to get it going. This is unique. In my time at Arson, I haven't seen that style of firelighting before where you have someone targeting brush fences. We didn't know if it was a serial arsonist that might have been in and around the area. We didn't know if it was just a resident in the area who was bored needing something to do. Um, We didn't know if it was school kids on the way to or from school. So we were hypothesising a, a range of potential options in those early parts of the investigation. Yeah, because you've generally got four types of arson. You've got arson for profit, to cover a crime, revenge, and also pyromania. Is that a starting point too, what the evidence leads you to think about the possible kind of arson? It would be very unlikely that it's an arson for profit because the multiple different fences and the multiple different victims themselves, there was no common link to it being an arson for profit. So we could almost remove that straight away. Investigators narrowed down the possible suspects. Was this about revenge? There was nothing to indicate that. Or perhaps it was to cover a crime. No, but that would happen later. Or was this the work of a pyromaniac? The compulsive firelighter, despite popular opinion, is actually quite a rare phenomenon. Detective Chief Inspector Richard Puffett is the coordinator of the New South Wales Arson Squad. Yeah, I don't think the perception generated by Hollywood and and so forth is probably reflected in reality. We don't see a lot of re-offending, probably because a lot of arson-type offences have a variety of motives. Uh, So we don't see the regular uh, or the media-based pyromaniac a lot, thankfully. Probably in the bushfire arson space, uh, potentially more. But there are so many motives as to why someone will commit an arson. I think there are many and varied. I think... Establishing a motive is helpful, not only in the investigative stage, but also the uh, prosecution stage, because it provides context to the offending. Sometimes we'll we'll probably never know exactly uh, what was playing on their mind at the time. With motive unclear, the pattern of the fires was the best guide for the strike force. So with the time and location of the fires and the days of the week, that assists us working out Firstly, who might be involved? Who is around at those times of the day? You may have a very different person at 2am in the morning versus 3pm in the afternoon. It appeared that the brush fence and the grass fires were taking place before 3pm, anywhere between 2.30pm and 3pm in the afternoons. 
who is moving about at those times of the day? Is it kids still in school who should still be in school? Is it parents on their way to pick up the kids from school? Is it retirees? Is it unemployed persons? Who is actually out and about between 2.30 and 3 o'clock each day? We were speaking with the local residents because, you know, we're looking for, do any of those residents have CCTV? Were they out and about themselves and have seen anyone in the area? And we were getting little information at that time. We didn't have anyone who saw that a person lighting a fire. The majority of these sort of cases tend to be, stereotypically, teenage boys, 90% of offenders in arson are, are young men. I guess you have to resist that stereotypical response to this and keep your mind open at this moment. That's exactly right. And we try and do that with all of our investigations. You know, you don't want to get what we call tunnel vision on one particular group or one particular person because then you lose sight of who actually might be responsible. So El Kanza decided to run a surveillance operation within the area of the fires. We were able to put together a surveillance operation over a number of weeks to see who might be lighting these fires. We were looking at anyone within that time period within that geographical area that might be responsible for lighting the fire. So we set up a very comprehensive surveillance operation. We had a number of police involved. Some were on foot, some were in vehicles, and some were being supported by the local community being allowed to use their premises as well. And with that network in place, we were able to get a pretty good, what we call an eyeball of the area of interest to maintain a fairly constant and seamless surveillance observation of the affected area. Police set up devices to capture movement beyond their physical surveillance and the Polair helicopter provided air support. The threat to property and public safety demanded swift and decisive action. Now, remember Yasmin Moon? She was observed at the scene of a garage fire in her apartment block in July 2014. As the arsons intensified, Ride Police had kept an eye on her and gathered more information about her from potential witnesses. Prior to Strike Force Wiley, limited surveillance was carried out and she was observed walking within the target area, picking her kids up from school. This was close to the time when the fires had been lit. Day one. We identified our female person of interest walking through the area at the relevant time, so between the 2.30 and 3 o'clock mark, and picking up her children from school. Following picking the kids up from school, that person returned and went home. And nothing really happened of interest to us on day one. No other person of interest and no fires were sighted on that first day. Day two. On day two, the surveillance operation was set up the same way. And at that time, Yasmin Moon was seen to walk into the affected area. And we'd had some previous fires in a small grass cemetery in the Carlingford area, which is sort of between her home and the school. And on that occasion, she was walking alone on the way to school. And out of nowhere, she just turned left and headed into the cemetery. Moon has no reason to make this detour into the cemetery. She can't get to the school that way. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a surprise for the team, but because of a previous fire here, El Cancer has it covered. She was seen in a grassed area of the cemetery and actually bend down near the grass, putting her hands close to the grass. So we thought at that point that something was going to happen. 
And you had someone in the cemetery? We did. That must have been a close encounter. It was a very close encounter. And um, unfortunately for our surveillance operation at the time, that person was seen by Yasmin Moon and spooked her and, and stopped her from lighting the grass up on that occasion. So there was kind of a decision moment there where you're thinking, she's made our guy, but does she know he's police? That's right. And at that point, we were fairly comfortable from... Once I debriefed that surveillance operative at the conclusion of that day's operation, we were fairly comfortable that she hadn't been spooked in relation to police interest in her, but by believing that she's interacted with a member of the public that was so close to what we believed she was going to do. So, this operation might have been over that first day had Moon not been disturbed in the cemetery and gone ahead to light up the grass. Alcanza was very confident that Moon would set another fire. It was a question of patience through days three to five. So for the remainder of that particular week, nothing more happened. We set the surveillance up and, you know, surprisingly to us, we actually didn't sight Yasmin Moon over the next two days. Uh, we weren't sure if that means that someone else was picking the kids up from school. The issue around seeing our surveillance operative may have made her go a little bit quiet, get a little bit spooked, we're unsure. So we stick to the plan. We get to the next Monday, which is day five of the operation, and we set up our surveillance as we had before. And we, with any surveillance operation, sometimes you just set up and you hope for the best, and that's what we did. Day five, Yasmin Moon leaves her home address in Carlingford. She takes her normal route to the school, and then, as on day two at the cemetery, Moon deviates from her path. She turns into Broadway Circuit, another cul-de-sac. It's one big loop, and sometimes it's a little bit challenging staying on a person when you're doing surveillance when they're on foot. You want to be close enough to the action to see what's going on, but you need to be far away enough that they don't know you're there. An operative follows Moon into Broadway Circuit from a safe distance until she disappears from view. She has slipped into a little alcove between two houses where she wasn't sighted for a period of time. Moon has gone out of view of surveillance and police are expecting her to light a fire. Several minutes pass. Moon re-emerges and sits on a concrete fence nearby. Detective Elkanza. And then, after sitting on that fence for a couple of minutes, has stood up and walked off to school and picked the kids up. A few minutes after she walks away, police in the area identify smoke coming from a fence line between those two houses where she was previously. It's another brush stick fence that runs between two townhouses. It's well alight by the time police converge. The fire would have been lit within sort of a foot of a gas main which is attached to the side of a house and also the power box to that house. So there was a serious risk that this fire could have taken hold of that entire property. So we had to make a decision then as to what we do next. Did we have enough to arrest Yasmin Moon at the time or did we need to continue the surveillance operation to see if we could gather more evidence? I decided to have the fire put out, stop the fire brigade coming from attending the fire because we were comfortable we'd put the fire out and then continue surveillance of Yasmin Moon. The aim now was to see Moon's reaction as she returned home with the kids. Would she revisit Broadway Circuit, the scene of her latest fire? She might have expected to see the fire brigade responding to her handiwork. We knew we probably had about 15 minutes, so we made sure the fire was appropriately doused so it wasn't even steaming or smoking in any way. 
we figured that no one would then walk down the street and actually look at this fire. There's no interest in it, there's no one around, why would you look at it? We then set up some recording equipment in the vicinity of that small fire scene and we sat back and we waited to see what she would do as she walked past. And she had probably three different ways she could have gone home that day, but she chose to go past the fire. And as she's walked past it, we've got on video that, you know, imagine you're walking down a street, walking straight ahead, the fire would be over your left-hand shoulder. So there would be no reason for that particular time to turn left and distinctly look over your left shoulder and backwards at this fire. And that's exactly what we captured. As she walked past that fire, the kids are walking a few metres in front of her and she distinctly looks left and looks directly at the fire that we believe she lit and then continues to walk home with her kids. After this excellent work, you've got another question. Should we arrest Yasmin Moon? That's exactly the question we had to pose to ourselves. As the team leader, you're carrying an amount of risk with these incidents. The potential for someone lighting a fire that hurts someone's or, or at absolute minimum damages a significant amount of property is a real possibility. So I had to look at all of the information we had at our disposal. Was this person lighting fires after hours, in the night, in the darkness, while people are at home? The answer is no. Was this person lighting in a distinct period of time and location? And the answer was yes. We decided to let the operation continue and see what would happen the following few days to see if we could capture better evidence to prosecute this person. Day six. Yasmin Moon again sets off on foot from home to pick up the kids from school. This time she brings her small white terrier for the journey. Surveillance is set up with even tighter format. We had even more staff in better locations to make sure, well, to try and future-proof the fact that we would have another close call but not actually get the evidence we needed. We observe Yasmin Moon leave her home and then she takes a completely different path than what we're used to and walks out of our surveillance network. Over the next 15 to 20 minutes, our entire surveillance team is scrambling to try and find her and we're unable to find her. And that got quite concerning for us, given that she'd lit the previous day and that we thought she might light again. Not having her under observation for that 15 minutes was quite stressful. Police would learn later that Moon had gone to buy cigarettes at a bottle shop before resuming her walk to school. And then we did pick her up as she was walking down the street where the school was. So then we were comfortable at that point that she had not lit a fire on the way to school because there had been no reports of fire, no smoke plumes in the air, and we had enough staff around to be comfortable that she hadn't lit. There was a feeling that their suspect was highly likely to light a fire that day. Because of the day before, we believe she'd lit a fire and she didn't get the result she wanted. So the fire hadn't grown enough to cause enough damage or she didn't see the emergency services actually responding to that fire. I believe that she didn't get what she wanted out of it. She wanted a reaction. She wanted a result from that fire the previous day. Moon picked up the kids from school and began the walk home. Police immediately observed a difference from her normal routine. She was walking behind the kids and giving the kids some distance, you know, anywhere up to about 10 metres. That was odd to me. So the decision was made to stay with her all the way home. 
To this point, it's believed that Moon has never lit a fire on the way home with her kids. It's always on the way to school. The pattern is about to be broken. The kids continued to walk significantly in front of her and that wasn't a matter of the kids walking fast, that was a matter of her walking slower to maintain that gap between her and the children. We walked with her past the premises that had been lit the previous day. Nothing occurred in that street. Yasmin Moon is nearly home. The kids are ahead of her and they turn right into the grassy reserve at the end of the Moon's driveway. The boundary is a fence line that runs the length of the park, most of it made of highly flammable brushwood. The kids turn right to head through the fences and towards home. She's left effectively alone beside a brush fence in a deserted parkland and at that point she's taken the opportunity to light up a brush fence under observations of our surveillance team, leave the brush fence on fire and then walk to her home. Which is only a matter of, what, a couple of hundred metres to home from there? Barely a hundred metres. The fire was only about 10 to 15 centimetres in height and, and just looked like someone had put a cigarette lighter directly on the brush fence. The surveillance team deployed fire extinguishers to that fire and put it out, you know, within 60 seconds of it being lit. So the fire had grown in size, you know, only to maybe 40 centimetres in height. But, you know, if we had been five minutes later, that whole fence would have been going. Once again, Yasmin Moon was denied the thrilling spectacle she so craved. The sirens, the fire engines, the crowd of shocked onlookers, the TV camera crews, if this one really got away. She must have been puzzled when, for the second day running, her best efforts had failed to deliver. Strike Force Wiley had achieved its objective. After three years of work by ride detectives and intensive surveillance with the arson squad, there was a suspect committing an offence that was consistent with up to 11 fires in the area, possibly more. There were up to 25 unresolved incidents on the books. The decision is made to arrest her. At that point, the fire she's lit on that particular day, the one we have watched, actually strengthens the fire from the previous day. That similar pattern, similar location, similar timings, the fact that the fence itself is the target of the fire in two consecutive days. The fire we saw versus the fire we just missed is actually strengthened when you look at it legally and the evidence available. So a decision was made to arrest her on that day and um, see if she wants to participate in an interview. Detective Senior Constable Glenn Mitchell from the Property Crime Squad and Detective Senior Constable Tian Peake from Ride Police make the arrest, supported by other members of the surveillance team. Right, and she's standing, I've seen a picture here, she's standing here with handcuffs looking... Quite surprised, shocked, gobsmacked even that she's been caught. What was her demeanour? She was intoxicated, we believe, by alcohol. Um, we think alcohol might have been a factor in her lighting these fires. We had seen during our surveillance previous that she would be drinking cans of Woodstock bourbon. So we thought perhaps the confidence the alcohol brings may have been a catalyst for these fire lighting. And, and on this occasion, there was evidence of Woodstock bourbon cans on the table at home. And there was also a full can of bourbon in that bag as well, along with a packet of cigarettes and at least two uh, cigarette lighters. Moon denied any involvement in lighting fires. At the time, her husband came home as well as she was being arrested. Poor husband comes home, sees police everywhere arresting his wife. Elvis Moon is completely unaware of his wife's activities and argues with the police. I had to take the husband away and say, listen, mate, this is what we've got. You know, don't create a scene here for us. We've been watching. We know more than you do at the moment. I actually walked him back to where that 
last fire had been lit, I showed him the fire on the fence and I pointed to him where my surveillance vehicle was at the time of seeing this go down to try and convince him that the police weren't there for no reason. She's arrested, she's taken back to the police station, she's still denying things and she's put in the interview room. Alright, so for the purpose of voice identification, can you please state your full name and spell your family name? Okay, Yasmin Moon, M-O-O-N. Alright, so I'm going to ask you some questions about the fire that occurred this afternoon on the 9th of February 2016. Happened around 3.50pm. Okay, my questions and any answers you give will be recorded on this machine. Yes. Do you understand? It's now nearly 8pm and Moon appears composed but drowsy as Tian Peake and Glenn Mitchell interview her. Okay. So the fire that occurred, it occurred roughly around here at the rear of this townhouse complex. Okay. What can you tell me about this? Nothing. Nothing? I have... I have to say, Donna, I'm an alcoholic. I was drunk. I have no recollection of doing anything. Okay. So can you tell me your movements this afternoon at all? Moon provides a version of her movements that does not quite fit with what members of the surveillance team have personally observed. The detectives patiently take her through the afternoon's events until she and the kids arrive at Don Stewart Park. Okay, and what can you tell me from there as you're walking through the park? What was happening? I need to go to the toilet. Is that what you were thinking at the time? Moon nods, but she's reluctant to continue. And what else? Just to get home. Just to get home. To go to the toilet. Okay. Do you remember stopping anywhere along that park? No, I was... I hate to say it, I was intoxicated. Yeah. How much do you reckon you... Too much. Too much? Moon pauses and plunges her head into her hands. And it shouldn't have had... I shouldn't have drank that much. She seems to be accepting that something had happened on the walk home while veering away from what it was. Yeah? Did you stop at the fence line along here at any time walking home? I can't remember. I'm really ashamed to say it. But I drank too much and I took the ice and I stuffed up. I've been to AA a couple of times and I've seen the psychologist as well. And it's like when you drink, things happen, he said. And What things happen when you drink? No, I've been at home and I've... Like, my husband would go, oh, you did this, and I can't remember anywhere. He says that I've actually, one night, that I sleepwalked and I was going to go outside, and I have no recollection of it. Like, he said, you were going to go outside. I said, no, I was sleeping. He goes, no, you were going to go outside. Yasmin Moon admits no knowledge of any fires, responding with confessions about drinking too much on that day and others. So this was a lapse in judgement. And I feel so much better without it, but it's just some stupid fucking thing I do. Yeah. All right, Yasmin. 
Do you recall stopping and lighting a fire no. or anything like that? No? Alright. Well, I'm going to tell you. Police had you under surveillance all the way down through Don Stewart Park. Yasmin Moon looks up in surprise. She's finally been caught after evading detection for so long. I personally observed you stand in front of this fence right here. Detective Alcanza, he's seen fire right there. As he's gotten out of his vehicle, he's observed you to go around in towards your house. Is there anything you want to tell me about this fire? I'm really sorry if I did it. I'm really sorry. I have no recollection. I'm really sorry if I did do that. Have you done anything like this previously that you can remember at all? Moon shakes her head sorrowfully. There would be no confession from her. From there, the interview assumes a pattern. Detectives put the details of numerous fires to Moon. She denies any knowledge. If she did do anything, she can't remember, even when confronted with clear evidence. No, I, I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone because we had a fire in our garage and... I've got to stay off the fucking alcohol, don't I? I'll give you a moment. All right, Yasmin? Detective Elkanza. The, the fires that were put to her, when very specific direct evidence was put to her, there was memory lapses. So there was a concession this could have happened, but she had no memory? Yes. On that day, she's charged with 11 offences relating to fence fires and grass fires that have been lit over that period of time during the January-February 2016 period, and she's bail refused. That night, while she's in custody, Yasmin Moon makes another appearance on camera. It's a pre-recorded interview on the SBS TV show Insight. The episode is called Love Conquers All, and it's about mixed-faith marriages. And I can tell you now, as the person involved in the surveillance operation, I was unaware that that was actually airing that night. Yasmin, who's a Muslim, appears with her husband Elvis, a Presbyterian who converted to Islam to marry his wife. The union with Elvis seems to have caused tension with Yasmin's family, especially with her father. Yasmin and Elvis appear to be a normal suburban couple, raising their kids in a multicultural community. Behind the scenes, the reality was different, which may have been a factor in the background to these offences. At the time of making the arrest... Uh, back in February for those 11 fires, you could tell that there was a relationship strain just in the way they even spoke to each other. You could tell that things were tense. I'm fairly sure that her husband wasn't happy with the amount of alcohol that she was drinking and the fact that she was intoxicated at around 3.30pm after she'd just picked the kids up from school. So things weren't going well in the relationship. Despite Yasmin's admissions that she may have lit the fires while drunk, she pleads not guilty to all charges. The evidence against her was overwhelming, so the stakes in this prosecution were now high for Yasmin's family. An early guilty plea on these serious charges might have saved Yasmin a custodial sentence. If found guilty at trial, jail was now almost a certainty. Detective Senior Constable Brad Pittman. So on September the 5th, Yasmin was found guilty of those charges that were before the court. Nine of those charges of the 11 and Yasmin's lodged an all-grounds appeal in relation to that. 
If Yasmin Moon refused to admit to the crime she'd committed, she would need something to stay out of jail. She needed some doubt in her favour, and in November 2016, weeks before her sentencing, Yasmin Moon changed tactics to achieve that, leading to the biggest fire of her campaign of arson. In the early hours of Saturday, 18th of November, a brush fence is set alight at the rear of number 5, 8th Avenue, Carlingford. It is the biggest fire of all, and that's due to the time of the fire. So it's 2.45am. It takes hold along the fence before jumping to the pergola of an adjoining home where two people are sleeping upstairs. Everybody's asleep. And you now have a real threat to life in this fire. Yeah, that's correct. The intense heat causes the rear windows of the house to break and the vertical blinds to melt. The fire consumes the barbecue area and the emergency valve of a gas bottle bursts. A young child next door awakes and sees an orange glow from the rear of the neighbour's house. She rouses her parents to alert the sleeping residents and call the fire brigade. By the time the fire and rescue arrive, flames are leaping from the pergola high over the second storey roofline of the house. The fire was contained and extinguished, but not before it threatened the whole street block. Police didn't have to go far for a suspect. The scene of the fire was just 150 metres from Yasmin Moon's home. There was, of course, no surveillance on Moon at this time, so detectives had to piece together her movements on the night. They learned from a friend of Yasmin that she was out and about on the night of the fire. Detective Pittman. Yasmin attends a licensed premise in Chatswood, where she meets up with some previous workmates. Police obtain CCTV footage from the venue. At the licensed premise, Yasmin's seen on numerous occasions buying alcoholic beverages, which is a breach of her bail. She meets a male friend, 35-year-old male friend, and they're seen on CCTV footage chatting for a while in the Chatswood licensed premise. At 12.33 the next morning, she's seen leaving the night spot with her new male friend. Brad Pittman. Yasmin goes to the male friend's house that she just met for a short period of time of around an hour and a half and around just after 2am Yasmin's male friend orders a taxi to his residence for Yasmin to get home. So he provides the name Yasmin and her mobile number as a reference. So about 2.18am A taxi arrives and Yasmin gets into the taxi on her own. Around 2.39am, the taxi arrives in Yasmin's street in Carlingford and Yasmin pays for the fare on a credit card. So she's currently in Carlingford in the cul-de-sac at the end of the street there. The taxi is actually GPS tracked to that point. And then approximately five to six minutes later, there is a fire on a brushwood stick fence. This fire, while spontaneously lit, turns out to be an attempt by Moon to alter the outcome of the sentencing hearing she was due to front three weeks later. She was due to be sentenced on the 15th of December 2016. We believe this was motive to try and identify that there was another offender out there 
because of the times of the days didn't match for this major fire. Hassan Elkanza. So from a policing point of view, she'd been through her hearing before where she was convicted of nine of the 11 offences and a significant part of the police case was the similar fact evidence between the types of fires, the time of day of those fires. So she knew that. She sat through that court matter and knew that the time of day was relevant to the police case. So we can only surmise by lighting a fire way outside those parameters, she was attempting to throw some of the heat off her. On the 6th of December, Yasmin Moon is charged with this new fire and refused bail. On the 15th of December, Moon is given an 18-month intensive correction order on the earlier charges which she appealed. She goes to a separate trial on her last fire, the 8th Avenue fire in November 2016. But despite all the evidence from the other fires, this trial ends in a hung jury. And that's the system we operate within, beyond a reasonable doubt. So clearly someone or some people on that jury were not completely convinced that beyond reasonable doubt she had lit that particular fire, which is why we had to go back for a second trial. Six months later, Moon is found guilty and is sentenced to three years and six months in jail, with a non-parole period of two years and five months. She serves her time and is released in May 2019 without ever admitting to the crimes of which she was convicted. Academic research on arson is sparse and the rate of re-offending is thought to be low. Many firebugs have no criminal history before being apprehended and do not re-offend. This behaviour is commonly associated with traumatic episodes in offenders' lives. Yasmin Moon's crimes coincided with her drinking problem and family tensions. And it's hoped that she's managed to address the root causes of this arson. She has not re-offended since being released from jail. If you have information about arson and other property crimes in your area, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or your local police. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.